Now we come to this, this next section in chapter 10. And you see there in your outline, we come to parenthetical section number 2. And just like we had a parenthesis in chapter 7 that lasted for 17 verses, now we have another parenthetical section that lasts from chapter 10, verse 1, to the end of chapter 11 and verse 19. And at that point, we're also going to see the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And notice what we have here then. We have a dramatic introduction. Look at chapter 10, verses 1. Let's read down to verse 3. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now let's kind of walk and unpack this a little bit. We have this mighty angel coming down from heaven so we know where he came from and where he's going, so that's that's key. He is clothed with a cloud. The word clothed there actually means to envelop, to just like when you put on a bathrobe, and if it's a real big one, it really just you're just enveloped in this robe. And that's the idea there. He's enveloped with a cloud. He's clothed with that. He has a rainbow on his head. Now, rainbows, as we have already discovered, speak of the covenant promises of God. We know that every time that we see a rainbow in the sky, it reminds us of the covenant that God made that He would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, He didn't promise He would never destroy the earth again, but not with a flood. So that, And every time we see that rainbow, we know of His covenant promise. And so the rainbow speaks and is a reminder of God's mercy even through dark and difficult days. Notice he has a face and his face shines like the sun. We have several indications of angels when they are manifested. They shine and their radiance is so bright that their countenance shines like the sun. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the Bible tells us there that his face shone like the sun. It was a shining, it was a, a brilliant shining. Has feet like pillars of fire. We have similar wording, not exactly the same, but similar wording in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 15, where we have Jesus with those feet like fine burnished bronze. He had this little book in his hand. That, I want to park on that one here just a minute. Let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. He has this little book, verse 2, he had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot. So what is this little book? Well, the theologians, they just love to talk about this. What is this little book? Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Most, or I won't say most, but many commentators say that this is the Bible that this is a miniature version of the Bible. And we'll tell you why it's miniature. Some of you already know, but, but there's an important why it's miniature here in just a little bit. It's okay. If, if that's what you believe, then I'm, and you're not going to have any problem with me. I'm not going to fight you over that. That's, that's perfectly fine because that is a legitimate possibility that it is a miniature version of the Bible. But as I looked in this a little bit more deeply, the word Bible or Scripture or scroll as it's referred to when the Bible speaks of itself, it always uses the word biblon, excuse me, biblos or biblion. Biblos, if you want to jot it down, is B-I-B-L-O-S, biblos. Biblion is B-I-B-L-I-O-N. And every time the Bible refers to itself, that, those are the two words in the Greek language, those are the two words that are used. 
Biblos or Biblion. And we have that, whether it's referring to the entire book of the Old Testament or portions of the book. Remember that time where Jesus stood up in, in his own town of Nazareth and he was given the Isaiah scroll? Those words are found there. But it's interesting, this, that those words are not found here. The word that is used here to speak of this little book, this little book is Bibliaridion. And here, it's, it's a long word. B-I-B-L-A-R-I-D-I-O-N. Let me do that one more time in case you want to jot it down. B-I-B-L-A-R-I-D-I-O-N. Much longer word. The phrasing here doesn't indicate a little Biblos or a little Biblion. It uses an altogether different word. And the only time that word is ever used is right here. Four times it's used in the Bible, and all four times it's right here in the book of Revelation. So it's possible that this is a miniaturized version of the Bible, but it's probably a better idea to think of that these are marching orders for John. These are some specific instructions given to John, and we're going to see what those specific instructions are here in just a moment. Now, let's let's read on here. Let's look at verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Now, you'd be surprised the number of people that talk about, well, I think I know what those seven thunders are. Well, it's ludicrous. I mean, if John wasn't allowed to write or to tell us what they are, why would some guy think he think he had the he has the he has secret knowledge? Anytime you've got somebody that thinks and claims they have secret knowledge, you need to just get your suitcase and run as fast as you can. I mean, because and there are people, but here we have a situation. It's an interesting addition to our study or an interesting insight to our study. There are things about the future that God keeps secret to Himself. He doesn't tell us everything. There are some things either we couldn't handle it if we knew it, or He just doesn't want us to know. He wants to leave some things to become sight when we get to heaven. And my my reassurance to you tonight, and my hope is to reassure you tonight, is we don't have to know everything. We don't have to know every detail. This is where we are encouraged and called to just live on in faith and walk on and just leave all that to God. And rather than worrying about what are those seven thunders? I wonder what that could be. And staying up late at night tonight trying to figure out what those, you're not going to figure it out. This, this is a kind of a good place to remember what we said earlier as we, as we think about interpreting this book. There's basically three ways to interpret the book of Revelation. All these signs and symbols and word pictures here. First of all, we said you can guess. Just guess at what they mean. And a lot of people do that. They just use empiricism and just their own common sense or lack thereof. And they guess at what these signs and symbols mean. Other people interpret this by taking events, historical events, and they bring those events into the Word of God and try to somehow with a cookie-cutter approach force that into the Word of God. And they want to they want to have an answer for every little sign and symbol and nuance and word picture that's here in the book. And when they do that, they make a lot of mistakes. Or you can do what we've been doing and are going to continue to do is we let the Word of God interpret the Word of God for us. That we read the Word of God we go to different portions of the Word, and the Word is the best interpreter of the Word. 
Because we start pulling in a lot of outside information. It, it, it's amazing the, the books that I've been reading and just kind of refreshing myself on, on some of these studies. It's amazing the number of times these guys say, well, this could be and this might be and this, well, I could say that. I mean, I could write a, a book that says this could be and this might be. There, there's no, there's no scholarly help in that. But the, the way to interpret this is to go to the Word of God and let the Word of God interpret itself and dig it out and find it. And where the Word doesn't fully clarify for us what we need to know, then evidently we don't need to know it. And if we don't need to know it, then we need not fret about it. We can just walk on in faith and leave that to God. And so we don't have to worry about these seven thunders. I've already spent more time on it than I probably should have already. But it's a good example to remind us of just keeping on pressing on. Let, let's go on here. Now, look at verse 5 here. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven. Now, let's talk, pause here just a minute while we're thinking about all this. Who is this angel that is here? Many times people refer to this this mighty angel to speak of Jesus Christ, and, and, and it's very possible. But, but as I look at all these different descriptions, it would be very easy to see the rainbow on the head, the feet like pillars of fire and standing on the sea and standing on the land. And, but but there's several reasons. There's at least five reasons why this is probably not our Lord Jesus Christ. One is because he's referred to as another mighty angel. In the Greek language, there are two words for another, another of the same kind and another of a different kind. This word for another mighty angel means another of the same kind. So he's another of the same kind of other mighty angels that we have read about and that we, that we will read about. And so that alone is probably a good enough evidence that it's probably not him. Secondly, there are other powerful angels. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, unique and set apart, high and lifted up, King of kings, Lord of lords. John always seems to present our Lord in unmistakable ways that we know it's him, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the lamb of God. We, we see those images all the time. What we just read here, we find this mighty angel actually lifting up his hand and swearing to the one in heaven. That would have Jesus swearing to himself if, if Jesus is this mighty angel. A fifth is this angel actually comes down to earth, has a foot on the sea, a foot on the land. That would make Jesus coming back three times which is not supported anywhere else in the Word of God. And so it, it seems to me, and I don't, I'm, again, I'm not going to fight on this, but it seems to me that this another mighty angel is just that, another mighty angel. So let's read on here. We've got to go. we got this, number two here, we got this powerful announcement. And let's read verses 5 through 7. We already read verse 5. So let's pick up at verse 6. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. In other words, it's time. We're getting ready to sound the seventh trumpet. The end is almost there. And just like it, we're going to find this with the seven bowls. When you have the seventh seal, you're near the end. When you have the seventh trumpet, you're near the end. When you have the seventh bowl, you're very, very, you're at the end. And so each time we have a seven, we're at the end. And you're going to see all that put together in a, in a neat package in our last night together. But let's read on. Then the voice which I heard from, from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. 
And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Let's notice the three items there in this peculiar command. Notice. First of all, he says to go. And the construction of the word there means to go now. Go now and take this book. And, and so if it, if it's the miniaturized version of the Bible, then that's what he's taking. If it's a, if it's John's specific marching orders or directions that he's supposed to carry out, then that's what it is. What, whatever it is, it's a small version of whatever it is, small enough that he's able to take it. Secondly, he's encouraged to eat it. He's actually told to eat this book. And as he eats it, it is sweet in his mouth, but bitter to his stomach. Now the message here is, it's, it's kind of like we read per portions of the Bible, and certainly when we think about the return of Christ, the whole idea is sweet for those of us who are Christians. Man, we would, we would love for that to happen in the next five seconds, or the next five minutes. But the thought of it is also bitter. Why? Because we know some people would miss it, would miss out and be left here. So it's not only sweet, but it's also bitter. But John is told to take this little book, whatever it is, and eat it. Now we do know this, that whatever that book is, it was sweet in his mouth, but yet the message he was going to have to deliver was going to be bitter. And he says the third item here is, you're called to prophesy again. John is being commissioned again to go out. There's, there's more ministry for John to fulfill. And he's told to go. Go now. Eat it. Eat it up completely is, is how the construction of that word is and prophesy again. Now, so far in my ministry, I'm not leaving anything out here. So far, I've not eaten any of the Bible literally. But if God told me to, I'd do it. So far, I haven't taken any of the pages out of my Bible and rolled them up and, and put them in my mouth. But if that's what it took to know this book more, I'd do it. John's told to take this book and eat it. Now, Jeremiah talked about how he ate the Word of God. He was told to eat it. The psalmist tells us how the Word is sweeter than a honeycomb. And he was talking about eating it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go home and eat it. But if God wakes you up in the middle of the morning and tells you to, go to the shelf. If you don't have an extra Bible, call me. I'll bring one to you. And I got a, I got a few extras and, and I'll watch you. I'll bring the sweet tea. But that's what John told to do. But spiritually, seriously, what it's reminding us is we need to take the Word of God in. Jot these three things, uh, five things down quickly. We're just about out of time. When I think about going and taking this, this little book, whether it's the Bible or whether it's specific marching orders for John, just to jot these down, you might want to put them on the back there on some personal notes, but five things that reminds me of things we need to do with the Word of God. First of all, we need to read it through. We need to read the Word of God. I got this outline from somebody years ago. I don't know if it was Dr. Rogers or where. I got this from somebody, and I can't figure out who I got it from. So if you've heard this before, these five little points here, that's that's okay. I'll give that person credit somehow. Read it through. We need to read the Word of God. And, and as I've encouraged you to read along in this study. I've encouraged you to read it out loud. But certainly read it. We need to read the Word of God. You need to read it for yourself. Secondly, think it. Think it clear. We need to meditate upon the Word of God. Some of the times we don't, or sometimes we just don't take the time necessary to think on, to meditate on the Word of God. Meditating to us kind of sounds like transcendental meditation or something that they do in other kinds of religions. But I'm, I'm just talking about reading the Word of God and then just either closing your eyes or just kind of thinking about 
What is that really saying? Think it through. Think it clear. Thirdly, write it down. One of the best ways to memorize verses of the Bible, sections of the Bible, chapters and whole books of the Bible is to write it down. Now, the first time or two you do it, you're going to have to look at a few words and write it, look at a few words, and, and that's the way you'll write. But the more you do that, the more, you'll, you'll, you'll be putting the Word of God in your heart, and there's something happens. I don't mean type it into the computer. I'm talking about writing it down. Because there's something happens when you read the Word of God, it goes into your heart and into your mind and out through your arm and out through your fingers, and you write it down on a piece of paper or a legal pad, and the more legal pads you fill up, the more you'll have the Word of God in your heart. Write it down. Fourth, pray it in. Pray it in. One of the best ways you can pray is to pray the Word of God into your heart and pray it right back to God. And number five, live it out. Live it out. As pastors, one of the things that uh, we're easily susceptible to is not practicing what we preach. And it's certainly not only true for us, it's certainly true, could be true for all of us, of not living out what we know to be true. And so those five things, read it through, think it clear, write it down, pray it in, live it out. Well, John is told then he has more ministry to carry out. And that comes to chapter 11. We're going to have to quickly do this one. Notice chapter 11. Notice a deeper review. First of all, there is the measuring of the temple. And we're going to see why the temple is measured here in a little while in our study in in a future night. But beginning in verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Forty-two months, uh, you're going to see that terminology throughout our studies together. Forty-two months is three and a half years, 1,260 days, also referred to as times, excuse me, time, times, and half a time. All that is the same period of time. In the Jewish calendar, a Jewish calendar year was 360 days, not 365. And here we have three and a half years being talked about, and we're going to see that more and more. Look at verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Here again, that three and a half year period of time. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, Two olive trees, olive trees meaning fruit, they bear fruit. Lampstands speak of light. These two witnesses speak of light. And here we have these two witnesses, these two guys. We assume that they're guys. These two guys that are that are given a special commission by God and also protected in such a way that they cannot be killed for an extended period of time. This, these are, this is a powerful situation and a unique situation. Look what it has in verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." These guys are going to have characteristics of like Moses and Elijah, able to turn water to blood, able to stop rain from falling. And these two guys, these two tremendous witnesses, are going to be leaders of a tremendous evangelistic effort here on the earth. And even though people are going to try to kill them, they cannot carry out the mission. Now I want you to imagine just for a moment, there are two guys walking around and they are carrying out certain activities, religious activities, spiritual activities, preaching the Word of God in such a way 
And every attempt to try to get them destroyed does not work. You think those guys are going to be on the 5 o'clock news, 5.30 news? David Letterman's going to be talking about these guys. These guys are going to be front page news. They're going to be talked about all over the place. There's going to be these newscasts are going to have their two witnesses report all over the world. And the media will be unwilling accomplices in helping them distribute the Word of God around the world. And they're going to communicate the Word in such a way that people are going to give their lives to Christ. They're going to be working along with these 144,000 that we've already seen sealed and protected by God. Read on verse 7. And when they finish their testimony, in other words, when God says your time of ministry is over, then it'll be over. And look what happened. Verse 7. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. But look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. That's referring to Jerusalem. And evidently those pictures there that are given to us remind us of how even Jerusalem is going to suffer a tremendous moral decline in these days. Verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, and notice, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. One of the greatest shows of disrespect is to not give a person a proper burial. But the world's going to be so happy that these guys are finally dead that they're going to leave them exposed to the elements for three and a half days and they're going to celebrate. The world is going to be excited the fact that these two guys are now off the scene, that they're no longer able to do their work of evangelizing the world. And notice we have here in verse 11. Verse 10, we missed that one, didn't we? And those who dwell on the earth, that's a key phrase, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Happy Dead Witnesses Day. That, that's the idea. They're going to be so excited because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. People are going to celebrate and have parties over the fact that these two guys are dead. Greeting card companies are going to be coming up with jingles and slogans so they can send out cards and so if you plan on being around at this time, you know, now would be the time to start coming up with some jingles and rhymes because credit card, I mean, uh, greeting card companies are going to want to hear from you, but I hope you're not planning on being there, but that's the kind of the scene that there's going to be excitement. There, there are going to be parties. They're going to be giving gifts to each other because these two guys are dead. And, and you can just imagine the, the news media every night and probably every, several times throughout the day, they're going to have their two dead witnesses report. Well, they're still here. They're still lying in the street and they're looking pretty bad at the, I mean, that, they're just, and, and everybody's going to be excited. These two guys are dead. Let's read verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Well, I guess so. Look at verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now we see several things here the voice from heaven. They're called up into heaven and the whole world will watch this happen. And the grammar tells us they're going to see this over and over again. We can imagine the replay that's going to be on the television. A friend of mine says that before this ascension happened, the wicked of the world were trying to make up their minds either to lock them up or chop them up, but God took them up. Well, that will be a sight to behold. And after they are safely in heaven, and the news commentators have time to get egg all over their faces trying to explain how all this did not happen. Then verse 13. Notice letter C, 
the end in sight. Let's read verse 13. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Again we are at the end. As with the seals, we have an earthquake, only here it is described as a great earthquake. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember, the first woe was connected to the fifth trumpet. The second woe was connected to the sixth trumpet. Now we have the third woe and the seventh trumpet. And that takes us to point four and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now I stated earlier that this seventh trumpet is not the last trumpet spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15.52, nor the one spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. There are several ways to document that, and we'll close by comparing this seventh trumpet to the trumpet of God. When this seventh trumpet sounds, there will be much activity that will be taking place, and a considerable amount of time will be required for all this to happen. Notice a considerable amount of time. Let's read the verses here, verses 15 through 19. It says here, the seventh angel sounded. Again, the judgment on earth of the seventh trumpet will not be seen chronologically until chapters 15 and 16. We'll get to that in a few sessions. The rejoicing in heaven is what we see here. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The rejoicing is because of the sense that the victory has been won. Let's read on. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Notice, the nations cannot stand it. They are defiant to the end. Let's read on. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Pause here. The temple open. The temple open speaks of unbroken fellowship. Seeing the ark speaks of unbroken fellowship for all the inhabitants of heaven. Now, compare all that to what we find in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. If you want, turn there in your Bible. But here is the reading that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Notice none of the actions associated with and accompanying the trumpet of God are depicted or presented in what we read in Revelation 11, 15-19, the text dealing with the seventh trumpet. Here in the first Thessalonians passage, we have the Lord will descend from heaven, there'll be a shout, there'll be the voice of the archangel, the trumpet will sound, 
The dead in Christ will rise first. Believers alive on earth at that time will be caught up, raptured up, and they will all go to heaven. And all this will happen in a moment of time. Quite different from what we read in Revelation 11. Compare Revelation 11 to what we find in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 52, we find these words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. At the sounding of the last trumpet spoken of here, things will happen in the twinkling of an eye. In a twinkling of an eye, the dead will be changed, and those alive will be changed. And this will happen in a microsecond. The key here is to discern what is the twinkling of an eye. Sometimes people confuse this with the winking of an eye, which is pretty fast. Some people can wink very fast. But the twinkling of an eye is the time it takes for light to pass through the lens of your eye, hit your retina, and return to the surface of your eye. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. The time it takes for light to pass through your eye and back again is the twinkling of an eye. The action that takes place at the sounding of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 does not even come close to resembling the seventh trumpet of Revelation chapter 11. We'll close there and pick up at chapter 12 in our next study. Let's pray.